Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight, we have a special guest, pro football historian and author, Terrence T.J. Troop. T.J. is one of the foremost historians of professional football. He has written numerous articles for American Football Coaches Monthly and was the football coordinator consultant for the 2008 George Clooney film Leatherheads and also the 2021 film 12 Mighty Orphans. He wrote his first book in 2009 titled This Day in Football, and in 2014, he wrote The Birth of Football's Modern 4-3 Defense, a splendidly detailed tactical analysis of how NFL teams played defense during the 1950s and a must-read for all serious pro football researchers. But tonight, Coach Troop is going to to reveal to us the expansion and evolution of the pro football passing game from 1947 to 1952. Coach, welcome back. It's great to have you back again. I'd like to start off by asking you, how were you able to isolate the year 1947 as the beginning of the expansion and evolution of the passing game? Well, Matthew, it's always a pleasure being on your show. Um, there's times you just, you're looking at, uh, reading about different years and players, and then you see the overall stats for a season. And in doing my research, I'm involved with Pro Football Reference at this time, and I'm attempting to list or complete the box scores, the individual stats for all the box scores. And I st I'm starting in the late 40s and then trying to continue and complete the 1950s. And 1947 kind of jumped out at me it was the first 12-game season, and as I was reading and looking at the numbers, I noticed a dramatic improvement in the passing game. So I really dug deep and uh, came up with a few things. Now, who were the key coaches and players who were instrumental in that expansion and evolution of the passing game? Well, we always are going to have um, George Hallis, of course, with the Bears, and uh, it seemed like almost every year there was a different coach in Washington. And even though the New York Giants were usually a running team with Steve Owen, um, in 1948 they're going to have a rookie quarterback named Charlie Connerly in their passing game yeah. will, uh, will really improve. Um, I'm going to hit a couple of numbers here before we go on. There were 188 touchdown passes thrown in 1947. The previous high was 126. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And for the first time, the efficiency rating rose above 50.0. Now, I know in today's game, having a, a passer with a 100 rating is not unusual, but back then, um, the league had never averaged over 50.0, and in 1947, it was 57.62. The previous high was 48.4. Mm. And then, of course, we were going to have the T formation is really going to um, take, uh, how do I want to say, take flight. Shall we use that since the ball is going to be in the air? Yep. The T formation will take flight because of a dramatic improvement in both the Eagles and the Cardinals. Mm. And, of course, we're always going to have the Bears and, and the Skins with Sammy Baugh. But overall, there is a league-wide improvement. Okay. Now, when you were doing your film study, what were the biggest surprises you encountered while researching this topic? Well, in, in one sense, there really is no changes. But then in another, there are um, 
let's just say that as I as I um, and I'm not going to list every formation of play, but the alignments and the strategy, while they're similar, it they are going to be expanded. I guess that's the term I want to use. Okay. Uh, real real briefly, Clark Shaughnessy, and he has a strange title, is hired by the Redskins to be a consultant. And he works in, in 1947, he works with Sammy Baugh. Now, I could not find anything that talked about how well they got along. And, of course, Sam had had so much great success in his double wing formations and spread offenses. And he was now a key formation quarterback. But you can see the um, design of the Clark Shaughnessy key formation in the Redskin offense in 47. And it even improves that much more in 48. Of course, Shaughnessy leaves after the one year and becomes the head coach of the Rams. Okay. And um, Greasy Neal in Philadelphia has an excellent quarterback in Tommy Thompson. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Conzelman, the head coach of the Chicago Cardinals, has an excellent key formation quarterback in Paul Christmas. Yeah. So and it, isn't it interesting that 1947, all of a sudden, it's not the Giants or the Packers or the Bears and the Redskins in the championship game. It's the Eagles and the Cardinals. Okay. And though they both are excellent at running the ball, both teams are excellent at play-action pass because they now have key formation quarterbacks and coaches that can direct this offense. Now, Coach, what year do you start seeing NFL teams splitting their ends? Because in the old days, the ends played like modern-day tight ends. I mean, right up right there on the line. They were basically interior linemen. When do you start seeing the splitting of ends creating like flankers and wide receivers? When do you see this? In, that's an excellent question, Matthew. Um, in the late 40s. Okay. Sometimes we won't call them split. We'll use the term, and they use it now. Um, the ends are flexed, okay. especially uh, the right end in Philadelphia, Pete Pios. He'll be in tight. He'll be flexed. And then occasionally, I won't even see him in the, in the frame of the film. He will literally be split. Now, there are no actual flankers, but in an essence, we do have flanker formations because we have backs go in motion and then turn up the field at the snap of the ball. So in essence, they're just a flanker that's moving. Okay. Now, when you were looking at your films during the expansion and the evolution of the passing game, are you seeing receivers running very precise delineated patterns or was it a case of the receiver just simply trying to get open and the quarterback waiting for the guy to get open before he throws the pass to him? When do you, exactly do you start seeing very precise pass patterns being executed? Well, in the late 40s, there still is. It, it's not like we visualize later on where you see receivers making these sharp cuts. Yeah. In the late 40s, it is still pretty much – I know that the defenses almost always are in a 5-3-3. Yeah. So you've got a corner out there. The end is just running to either an area or a, a basic pattern. The difference we see is better passers and the timing is improved dramatically. Okay. So at times you'll see the ball in flight before the receiver has turned his head. Okay. Now, the Coach, the reason why I asked that question is, I remember reading an interview with El, the great Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. He talked about before 1955, that's before the arrival of Sid Gilman, 
he basically could articulate his own patterns. You know, he would just go hither and yon, and Bob Waterfield and Norm Van Brocko would wait, you know, and finally hit him. He said when Gilman arrived in 55, it was Gilman who insisted that Hirsch run very precise, well-delineated patterns and not to deviate from those patterns. So that's why I'm kind of curious about when do you start seeing very precise delineation of past patterns? Well, again, you're absolutely right, Matthew, and it is in the 50s with each year going as we get into the 50s. Now, there are some teams where a receiver actually does run. Um, Max Speedy in 1952 has an outstanding year with Cleveland. When I watch him run his routes, he plants his foot and shifts his weight and cuts sharply. Mm. And the other one, uh, the same year in 1952, uh, is Billy Houghton. He has good speed, but boy, he runs sharp patterns. So you'll see it a little bit in the early 50s, but by the mid-50s, we, we all know that football is a copycat league. If we see guys doing it on one team, priests and other teams are going, hey, we want you to do this. You mentioned the interesting you brought up the Cleveland Browns because i like to ask you this. When the Cleveland Browns joined the NFL in 1950, of course, they began this incredible domination of the league. Let's get into their passing game because, of course, they had the great Otto Graham and then you had the great tandem of Max Speedy and Dante Lavelli. When you looked at the films, is it a truly varied passing game, or was it more of a short yardage passing attack? What did your film research show you? Well, for Paul Brown, he's going to demand. And, of course, having Graham is going to be that much easier. They are going to, on occasion, you'll see him throw the deep ball. And you will see short stop patterns. But the biggest, um, how do I want to say this? What really struck me about Cleveland and Graham is they are masters with both Lavelli and Speedy of running the deep square in route. Mm. And that actually becomes their trademark. And Graham has such excellent touch and accuracy, he leads them to the middle of the field and against a 5-3-3 defense. Yeah. He's actually running in between the linebackers in front of the deep safety, and Graham puts the ball on the money. So, uh, and also, Cleveland has an excellent halfback um, who went in motion and could catch the ball out of the backfield in Doug Jones. Yeah, I mean, wasn't wasn't button hook passing a, a typical staple of the Cleveland Browns offense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's times. Again, I'll go to fifty-two because Max Speedy leads the league. There's times because of his speed, the corner is playing way off, and Speedy will just go down nine yards and just turn around. And the ball will come to him. He'll make the catch, be able to turn all the way around and run after the catch because the corner is so um, concerned about Speedy's deep speed that he's playing way off him. And then he comes up to try and make the tackle. And then at other times, you'll actually see Speedy running a post corner or the deep post pattern, which was his, you could tell it's his favorite pattern. Besides the Cleveland Browns, name some other teams in the NFL that were also going deep. I mean, real deep penetration routes there. Any any others come to mind, Coach? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to put in there very briefly. In 1949, the NFL decides on a trial basis to go back to single platoon football. Mm. And that is paramount to the passing game success because you're going to have guys like Van Brocklin, Connerly, Kittle, who would have never been able to play defensive back 
Bears have a passer um, who is going to basically replace Sid Luckman and Johnny Lujak. Mm. And Lujak can throw the deep ball. He can throw, make every pass. I mean, he really is legitimately um, an all-pro talent, a quarterback. Unfortunately, he is the right corner on defense. And I wish I had more detailed information. But when those little tiny quarterback shoulder pads and being as tough as he was, uh, I kept reading and there were rumors that Lujak separated or kept injuring his shoulders making tackles, and that's why he has such a short career. But he could throw deep. Graham was okay at throwing deep. Bobby Lane, even the ball, the ball would wobble, could throw deep. Waterfield had nice touch throwing deep. Connerly could throw deep. But the man at that era who had the best deep ball by far was Norm Van Brocklin. And he would hold the ball longer, and then he would literally rainbow it out there. And that's going back to your comment about Hirsch. Hirsch would just kind of run down the field and twist, and he'd look up and just run underneath the ball that Van Brocklin threw. Yeah. And, of course, in the 1951 NFL championship game, it was Tom Fears who caught that 73-yard bomb from Van Brocklin that won the game. Absolutely. And they were um, – and since you brought it up, let's let's go to the magic trade. Yep. Um, Bob Shaw is the right end in 1949 for the Rams. Late in the season, he has a four-touchdown game yep. for the Rams. And the Rams have one fine tackle in Dick Huffman, but they need another one. So they trade. They trade Bob Shaw to the Cardinals for um Bob Reinhardt, and Reinhardt's an outstanding tackle. Well, Hirsch was the starting left halfback and ran the ball the first part of 49 and ranked amongst the league leaders in rushing, but he did not play well the second half. I'm not sure all the reasons. Um, so he basically is on the bench when they're in the championship against Philadelphia in 49. So with the trade of Shaw, Hampton Poole takes him aside and says, well, kid, this is it. You either become the right end or, you know, you're just going to be out of the league. And he plays well in 50, but, of course, we all know what he does in a year's experience and with his athletic ability and competitive nature. Look at what he does in 1951. He's yeah. got the quarterback. They've got the design of the offense, and he has fears. I mean, fears led the league as a rookie in 48. He repeats in 49, and then he sets the record again in 50, with 84 catches, so defenses yeah. are looking at him. Yeah. And Hirsch is going, okay, I'll show you what I can do. Yeah. Now, when you are when you're doing your film analysis, what was the ratio of passing to the ends versus passing to the backs? Because I remember reading in an interview once, Sammy Ball, he always his preference was always to match a back against a linebacker. That's why he always, he always liked that in terms of his high percentage passing. What was the ratio based on your analysis? Well, it would depend upon the team. There are some teams that are going to throw. I mean, we talked about Cleveland. Other than Dub Jones catching some passes, the throws are going to go to Lavelli and Speedy. And the same with in the Rams will throw to their backs. It's not that they didn't, but they're still going to throw to the ends. And that's pretty much the staple in the league, except in Washington. And the guy who really stood out 
1947, his second year in the league, is Bob Nussbaumer. Mm. Now, previous to that, the Redskins had a guy named Steve Bagaris, and he had he had a couple of pretty good seasons, pretty flashy, did some good things. Yeah. But in 1947, in his second year in the league, Nussbaumer is second in the league in receptions, and he's a back. And Ball utilized him so well, whether he would go in motion and then run a route, or he'd align as a wing and run a route, or he just, and he ran circle routes, deep outs, stop patterns. He, he did it all. So, yes, Sam would throw, it, the Redskin ends, it was almost like they were clumped. Mm. They would all go down nine yards, stop and turn around and catch the ball, Unless, of course, it's Bones Taylor. Yep. And he's a rookie in 47. And it's so funny to see him aligned as the left tight end at 6'4", about 180, because he never blocked anybody. Yeah. But he was a legitimate deep threat. So if Nussbaumer is going in motion to Hugh Taylor's side, all of a sudden against a 5-3-3 defense, linebackers who are not experienced in covering passes, yeah. somebody's going to be open. Right. And, of course, we know how accurate Sammy is throwing the ball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, before we did this show, you were telling me about an article you submitted about the New York football Yankees. Can you please tell our listeners about George Ratterman, who was the quarterback for the New York football Yankees? And he had a very sensational season during, what was it, late 40s or whatever. Who were his key receivers? Well, um, when I... When I write for the Pro Football Journal, much like I did in my book, I'll do a chapter on a team. And, of course, it's a a lot easier to write about a team when I have game after game after film. Well, I'm looking at the New York Yankees in 1950, and uh, they were 7-5. and Yeah. And I'm looking at this, so I thought, okay, so I had enough film, so I started looking at it. Ratterman threw the ball well early in the season. It looks like he's going to be the first team all-pro quarterback. And when you look at the other passers in the league, that's impressive. And he's got a dynamite pair of receivers. The right end is more of a possession receiver named Dan Edwards. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough about him. Dan Edwards goes to the Pro Bowl. The guy could make catches. I wrote about it in the Pro Football Journal. Yeah. And the other, the left end, and he only plays one year. And he was a big, rangy guy who had excellent deep speed. A a young man named Art Weiner. Oh, gosh. At one point, I think he was averaging like 27 yards a catch. Yeah. But the key is, even though they have a a fullback named Zolly Toth, who was a tough inside runner. Yeah. And I wish that someone had written about this earlier. There are times... Sherman Howard would come off the bench, though he was undersized, and he would be at fullback. And they would have Buddy Young and George Taliaferro at the halfbacks, the first time ever in the NFL. Three African-Americans in the backfield. Mm. And that year, in 1950, on the numbers, when I say these, those three men, even though Edwards and Weiner are having terrific seasons, the three backs combined for 53 catches, 879 yards, and 11 touchdowns. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the first at the Yanks, are, it's the Yanks, Rams, and the Bears, basically in a three-way race to see who's going to go to the championship. And, I mean, you're thinking, 
And now they fade the second half because their defense was just very subpar. Yeah. But the offense, oh, they could run the ball okay, but man, could they throw. And Ratterman, he was one of those guys, oh, yeah. You know, he understood the passing game, and he had talent. He goes, okay, boys, here we go. So whatever routes they ran, he got on the ball. What role did Y.A. Tittle play in the expansion and evolution of the passing game when he start, when he joined the San Francisco 49ers? Because I noticed he, when he started off in the AAFC, he played under Cecil Isbell, of course, he actually set the NFL record for most touchdown passes in a season at 24 in the early 40s. And, of course, he passed to Don Hudson. How influential was Isbell in developing Tittle's passing game? Well, I'm sure that they spent time together on, on all the aspects that you have a coach and a quarterback. And we all know from watching film um, that YA really threw a good ball. Yeah. And I think one of the aspects for his success in San Francisco was the beating, was the beating he took in 1950 with the Colts. You have Y.A. Tittle and Adrian Burke rotating in a quarterback for the 1950 Colts, yeah. and they win one game. Ouch. And both of them later in their careers will throw both throw seven touchdown passes in a game. So it wasn't for lack of passing ability. It was more along the lines of can they stay on their feet with before the pass rush beats the hell out of them. So when YA, since we're discussing him, when he goes to San Francisco, Buck Shaw is a very underappreciated coach. Yeah. And Frankie Albert had been doing the T formation forever. Yep. So Tittle, they, they alternated and they worked well together in the sense of they were both competitive, but they both understood. And the 49er offense was always excellent. I know before I went on the air, you told me, about a special passing combo with the Pittsburgh Steelers, Jim Finks to LB Nickel. Yes, sir. Um, in fact, uh, that's uh, 1952. And the last game of 51 is the field is covered in snow. The sun is, is glistening off of it. And the Steelers are still in the single wing. They're struggling. Finks has played tailback in the past. Though so most of the time he's a starting defensive back, and he could throw. Yeah. But because they want the tailback to run as much or more so than throw, things didn't really get a chance. Well, they win the last game of the year in '51. So in '52, there's a coaching change in Pittsburgh. Joe Bach comes in, and he had been an assistant for Gus Dorai with the Lions. Now yeah. they're flip flopped. Bach brings in Gus Dorai and. Thinks ties. This is crazy. Yeah. They go from a single wing team to in 1952, Thinks ties Otto Graham for the league lead in touchdown passes thrown with 20. Wow. And that Steeler offense, LB Nickel had just had a great synergy with Thinks. And of course, he had caught the ball occasionally when they were in the single wing. But he just explodes. I mean, he ends a 52 season with a 200-yard receiving game. But the other aspect is Gus Dorai also understood how to use backs as receivers. And the Steelers had two of the best in Ray Matthews and Lynn Shadnoy. Yeah. And there were times where Shadnoy would literally go in motion to the side where Matthews was aligned as a flanker, creating a trips set for the Steelers. And they would all run their routes, and then LB Nickel would run a crossing route underneath. I mean, that's that's pretty dynamic. 
for 1952. Now, earlier in the show, you talked about Billy Houghton. You said the Packers, you know, even though the, the team was you know, not exactly exceptional, they had a very great passing game during that time period because they had Tobin Rote and Billy Houghton. Tell me, I mean, Houghton later broke Don Hudson's record for most receiving yards. How influential were they in expanding the passing game, Tobin Rote and Billy Houghton? Well, again, you don't see a lot of variation, though at times it's really strange when Perilli is a rookie. Babe Perilli will be a quarterback, and Tobin Rote will be in the backfield as a halfback, Ooh. and Perilli will flip in the ball like a, like a sweet play to the right, and because Rote's such a good runner, he'll roll to the right, stop, and pass. But other games, of course, he's that quarterback. And because of his ability to run, and he does have a very strong arm, all of a sudden, he has a receiver that has speed and, as I mentioned earlier, has moves. And he really set the league um, on fire in 1952. It's one of the best rookie years ever for a receiver. And the term I always use for those two is the synergy. In fact, I'll go very briefly. In the first half of a game in 1956, Houghton has, I believe it's 200 and 31 yards receiving in the first half. Wow. And it forces the Rams, they bench their starting left corner. Houghton was that good. And by the end of his career, in the early 60s, when I would actually see him on television, and he's a Dallas Cowboy, though he's still an excellent receiver, he just doesn't have the deep speed anymore. But anybody who catches 500 passes for that many yards, Billy Houghton was the complete package. Let's get back. You mentioned Bobby Lane earlier. What t- what was their passing game that the Detroit Lions used during the early 50s? Because they won back-to-back titles in 52 and 53. What what type of passing game were you seeing with Bobby Lane, and who were his key receivers? Well, first off, I'm going to make a plug here for their coach. Um, I really believe Buddy Parker should be in the Hall of Fame. He has a book. If, you, if all of you out there are really interested to understand the strategy in this era, Buddy Parker's book, We Play the Game to Win, yeah. is absolutely the best. Yeah. And because Buddy Parker was actually the co-coach of the Cardinals in 49 before they shipped and he goes to the Lions, he, he had worked with Paul Christman. He understood the passing game, even though in his playing era, he was a fullback for the Lions. And they did not have a lot of variation in the routes or their ends. They was pretty standard stuff. But Lane, of course, was accurate. Yeah. And you could never tell him he was beaten in the game. And he did have talented receivers. Cloyce Box is moved from halfback to end, and he had good deep speed. He had some fine seasons. They've got Leon Hart, Dorn Dibble, and the backs, while they all caught passes, Doak Walker was always a threat as a receiver, yeah. whether it was like short little foot plays or deep routes. But the key to the Lions passing game, and this is, when I put film on, this is for the the entire time that Buddy Parker is the coach of the Lions, and I'll even toss this in when he goes to the Steelers. Every running back on the Lions had to be able to throw the halfback option pass. I, I don't care how good the runner was. If he couldn't throw the halfback option pass, I don't think they'd have made the team. And if you look up the passing numbers for the backs, and they only did it in the red zone, they were all excellent at it. So that was also 
a, a little variation that Detroit, you know, the other teams did it, but the Lions did it the best. Coach, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show, and I can't wait to have you on again. Uh, I know we're going to talk, we're going to be, you're going to be on again. So I want to you know, wish you well, and you take care, Thanks. Coach, okay? All right. If I could end real quickly here, um, one of the keys to the passing game, as I mentioned earlier, was not only the efficiency, but from 1941 through 1946, in those six seasons, there were only 64 100-yard receiving games. With this, as I stated, with the development and the evolution of the modern passing game, in the next six seasons, 47 through 52, there were 188 100-yard receiving games in the league. Wow. I mean, it's basically tripled. Yep. In other words, you find a receiver, he's having a good day, they just kept throwing the ball to him. Okay. Coach, I want to thank you so much. You take care, okay? You too. Okay, bye-bye. Always bye. a pleasure, Matt. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show, which will air on September 20th, where I will interview military historian Chris Kolakowski. In the meantime, I have just released my latest book, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. It's available and on sale at Amazon and paperback and Kindle, and will remain on sale until mid-February. If you are looking for a stocking stuffer to buy for Christmas, or if you are a diehard NFL history freak, then please buy this book. Thank you and good night.